Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Mountains, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. School choice is one of the most divisive issues in education, and it has been for some time. Since the 1990s, support for private school choice has become increasingly politicized, with Republicans making it central to their education agenda and Democrats largely in opposition. Despite this, Republican state legislatures have typically approached implementing private school choice as a bipartisan affair, conceding one policy trade-off after another in attempts to win some Democratic votes. But is such compromise necessary? Could Republicans pass private school choice legislation on their own without making concessions to Democrats? And should they? Here to discuss this question is a friend of the podcast, Jay Green. Jay is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and previously served as distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. Jay recently authored a report for AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network titled, Does School Choice Need Bipartisan Support? An Empirical Analysis of the Legislative Record. Jay, welcome back to the report card. Thank you. Some have called 2021 the year of school choice, or the year of educational choice to get the branding right. For those who might have been distracted, maybe by other issues over the past year, Jay, what led to that titling for 2021? Well, I guess people wanted to shift from saying school choice to educational choice because a lot of the new choice programs and expansions are for education savings accounts. And um, it allows people to use money that the government places in an account for a broad range of educational services and not just school. And so the idea of broadening out the term to include non-school educational activities that people can purchase with, uh, with government funds uh, is, is an important point to make. Although I, I think these rebranding exercises are, are often uh, futile because people are going to call it whatever they want. And especially the, the opponents will call it what they want for sure. Yeah. And school choice, you know, it's more than just vouchers. There's multiple uh, attributes. But why is 2021 the year of school choice? Well, that's because the public school system broke faith with the middle and upper middle class. They were able to get away with uh, sticking it to low income minority kids forever without uh, any real consequence to them as long as they could keep middle and upper middle class families uh, relatively satisfied, which they were able to do in part because suburban public schools exist in a fairly competitive environment and middle and upper middle class families could choose among public school districts that would uh, serve their needs reasonably well and allow them input uh, over, over what and how their children are taught. The pandemic laid bare that even for people with, with greater advantages, uh, they still couldn't control the education of their children. So uh, the unions were quite resistant to going back to in-person instruction, and that resistance alienated a lot of upper middle class families. Um, In addition, when education was beamed into people's houses remotely, parents were able to see the content and quality 
for themselves and oftentimes were disappointed by what they saw. And this led to, to a middle and upper middle class family rebellion against the public school system uh, to a much greater degree than had ever happened before. And that opened the door to many more school choice uh, or as we say, educational choice programs in the last legislative session. So the last year was productive legislatively in, in states for school choice programs. And, you know, your report from AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network on how these programs have come into being may be, you know, particularly important given that light. Your report deals with school choice programs and the politics behind them at the state level not necessarily sort of familiar territory for everybody. So before we dig in, what do we know about, first, just partisan public opinion regarding private school choice? I mean, where do the people stand on these issues? So uh, public opinion polls do show that Republicans uh, support universal school choice at a higher rate than Democrats do. However, uh, means-tested or targeted programs are particularly popular among um, minority Democrats. And so, look, three decades ago, the school choice strategy, which I bought into and believed uh, because it seemed to make sense, was that that because school choice was particularly popular among low-income and minority students who were being very poorly served by their public schools, that you could drive a wedge between them and the teachers' unions uh, for the hearts of Democratic state representatives, and that uh, you could peel away enough Democrats to get a bipartisan coalition of ideologically committed Republicans along with minority Democrats, and that would be your winning coalition. That was the strategy and, and, and has been the strategy, frankly, of the school choice movement for its entire history. Um, the question that we wanted to examine in this paper was empirically, has that strategy worked? That is, have we managed to peel away very many elected Democrats? And the answer is no. <laughs> We've peeled away very few. Um, rarely do elected Democrats vote for school choice programs, and even more rarely do their votes matter for the outcome. And so this strategy of chasing Democratic votes in state legislatures seems to be a, a mistaken strategy. It was, it was, it was a, a, a sensible thing to try, but at some point you have to reevaluate the evidence and reconsider the strategy. All right. So there was this strategic approach made sense. You think it was mistaken in retrospect. Let's see how we get to that retrospection. You got into the data on school choice legislation since the 1990s. Specifically, what question were you trying to answer? What data did you gather and which legislation was included? Sure. So, yeah, we looked at, at school choice legislation. And so what we did is we identified every um, uh, state legislative vote on a school that adopted a school choice uh, program, a private school choice program, uh, the vote on the final passage. What we did not include were school choice programs that were adopted as part of omnibus bills or budget bills, where the school choice provision was one of many things that people might have been voting on. So we were we were focused on 
on the, the situation for people who were voting on school choice itself and where their vote was being recorded as a vote on school choice, on pri- private school choice. You wanted a clear signal for whether they were up or down on school choice, not an omnibus bill where they might have been up or down on any number of things. Exactly, exactly. And and so we were able to find uh, 70 state legislative votes. So that's that's essentially 70 legislative chambers uh, that voted on final passage of a school private school choice bill. Um, and then we were able to collect the partisan breakdown of how people voted on the, uh, those 70 legislative chamber votes. Can we pause, Jay, just for a second to get a lay of the land on these state legislatures? Because, you know, most people just aren't paying attention to their state legislature, much less state legislatures countrywide. So what is the typical makeup of these legislative houses? Are they typically, you know, sort of single party dominated in most states? Are they fairly evenly split? So I, I don't have the exact numbers at my fingertips, but um, but currently the majority of the clear majority of, of state legislative chambers are dominated by Republicans. Um, so while the Democratic Party controls the national House and Senate, uh, the Republican Party controls the, the House and Senates in most states. 30-some states are dominated uh, by, by Republicans. And they, the Republicans also dominate um, Governor's Mansion in, in the majority of states as well. So the Republican Party is very strong at the state level um, and less strong at the national level, at least currently. And so there are a lot of places where if you wanted to appeal to Republicans alone, you would have a majority to pass bills. And so the question is, why do you need to appeal to the Democrats, given that you could pass bills in a ton of states without having to win over Democrats? So that's that's an interesting question, too, that that we haven't considered. So but but where does that pressure come from, Jay? Like, let's be specific on it. Uh, you know, I, I get that there's a lot of legislators that are united politically enough that Republicans could push this through on their own votes. But there's been this push for bipartisanship when it comes to school choice efforts. And, and there's some rationale behind it, I assume. But where is that push for bipartisanship coming from? I mean, would you assume that it often comes from the legislators in these houses pushing for individual bills? Is it coming from advocates? Uh, you know, where's the pressure from bipartisanship generally sourced? Right. And, and, and let me be clear. I mean, bipartisanship sounds like a good thing in and of itself. And so I'm not sure that that's the right word we want to be using here because it sounds like apple pie. I think what we're talking about is giving priority to democratic concerns when crafting school choice proposals. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether we would like support from from both sides of the aisle. Of course we would. Every 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 school choice advocate should be in favor of getting as much support from both sides of the aisle as they can. The the issue is whether the proposals that they put forward, the rhetoric they adopt, the the campaigns that they launch are built around democratic concerns or Republican concerns. So we're not talking about whether we should have bipartisanship. What we're talking about is whether we should put front and center the concerns of Democrats when pushing for school choice. And where did that come from? Well, it it did come originally from a reasonable theory. And the reasonable theory was that given the 
the large support among urban minority constituents for expanded school choice, that there was an opportunity to peel away elected Democrats and make up, make them part of a larger coalition to pass more bills in, in state in state legislatures. I think that that was not a bad original idea. And we built a whole lot of rhetoric and 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 proposals around that theory. But the reason why we're sticking with that strategy, despite I think very clear evidence that it's not working, is a more complicated story. And I think has a lot more to do with the organizations and people involved in the school choice movement. So the school choice movement is funded you know, by a, a handful of large foundations and it's dominated by a handful of very large advocacy groups. And, uh, and there's a group think among these folks. And there's also um, a self image uh, that they wish to maintain. They wanna think of themselves in certain ways. Um, they think there are certain advantages to themselves for, for pushing these strategies. And so to some extent, these funders and these organizations aren't entirely about school choice. They're about something else too, including the needs and priorities of the individuals in that movement. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's much more popular to show up at, at events and talk about how you're fighting for, you know, equity and justice and so on. And, and uh, because among national elites, democratic talking points are more popular. And so the people who fund and work in the school choice movement don't, they want to be well thought of uh, by national elites. And so they stick to these strategies and this rhetoric, despite, I think, pretty clear evidence that, that it's counterproductive. So let's talk a little bit about the, the fruits of these sort of compromises, right? If you're a Republican choice proponent and you're pursuing bipartisan support, what are the kinds of compromises that you might entertain or be told to entertain? to court Democratic votes? I mean, what do these kinds of compromises actually look like? Sure. And, and also, again, just to clarify, we're not really talking about bipartisan. We're talking about Democratic-centered proposals. And we're not also talking about compromises. I mean, in the end, you know, politicians should compromise to get whatever they can, you know, as much as they can get. But, but, you know, getting something is better than nothing and uh, in most circumstances. And so they should be very open to lots of compromises. The question is, what is the opening proposal? Um, and if you look at the model legislation uh, for school choice advocacy groups and the rhetoric they build around it, they, they don't express a willingness to compromise later. They, they compromise before the negotiation. And the, comp the provisions that they include are means testing, of eligibility for uh, private school choice um, uh, or, and or geographically targeting for urban minorities. And, uh, and almost all of the rhetoric uh, around these uh, proposals is built around social justice, equity, and the kind of uh, language and concerns of the Democratic Party, which makes sense if your main goal is to appeal to Democrats. And that's so. So I think that there are also other provisions I should uh, should emphasize in in these model legislation. So there's often a preference for smaller programs that are not universal, that are not statewide, where the funding is uh, is low, where there are hold harmless provisions for the traditional public school system. All of this is done so as not to threaten too much 
the uh, financial interests of the traditional public school system so as not to place elected Democrats in greater jeopardy than they have to be with respect to their public school allies, right? So that the crafting of, of, of limited size programs with modest funding is, is so as not to alienate traditional Democratic allies of the Democratic Party. So means tested means there's a poverty limit and not universal means it's not available to everybody. And geographic proximity means only some places. So uh, and also limited funding means, well, there's limited funding. So uh, basically smaller, more circumscribed programs is generally what are pursued. And they're pursued with the language that is favored by Democratic constituencies relative to Republican constituencies. Right, right. So that, and this is the opening bit. This is not a compromise that people are willing to accept. This is this is what they're proposing to start. So I, I, I sort of feel like I know where we're going, but let's let's get to what you found. You looked at the history of school choice voting in state houses. Uh, how did the votes play out? So very few Democrats uh, vote for private school choice programs uh, in state legislatures. Uh, less than a quarter of, of elected uh, Democrats will are, are yes votes on these bills in, in the entire history of 70 chamber votes that we examined. But more importantly than the low number uh, or the low percentage of support among Democrats is that in almost all circumstances, the handful of Democrats who do vote yes are inconsequential to the outcome. That is, in almost all of the uh, legislative votes that we examined, Republicans could pass uh, these bills without a single yes Democratic vote. That is, in 67 of the 70 legislative chamber votes, there was uh, 50% support or more, even if we counted every Democratic vote as a no. Uh, so, so the Democratic votes were inconsequential to the outcome, in addition to there being very few yes votes out there. And, and we should just point out again, I know I'm sort of restating, that this would be different if you in, included charter legislation back to the 1990s. So charter schools is a form of public school choice but very different from the private school choice bills that we're talking about. Is that correct? That's probably true, although, frankly, I'm not 100% certain. I, I actually think this is a very worthwhile project for someone uh, to go do, and maybe, maybe we'll, we'll go do it. But it's not, I'm not entirely sure how supportive Democrats, elected Democrats, have been of charter school uh, proposals, uh, and I'm not sure how consequential they've been to passage as well. That is, I'm not sure that that Republicans couldn't just pass most of those, even if they received zero Democratic support. Roger, so that could be the case, but what we're talking about now is just the private school choice. That's right. That's right. Okay, so uh, giving the overwhelming proportion of progress that came from Republican votes or could have come solely from Republican votes, you're, in your report, you call into the question the notion that school choice needs bipartisan support at all, right? I mean, that this strategy may be counterproductive. And this sort of makes me think, right, of the Matrix, you know, when Morpheus asks Neo, right, like red pill or, or blue pill, right? In this case with school choice, it's like, do you go solely Republican support, red pill, or, or go for bipartisan support, blue pill? So 
what do you think that the potential benefits could be for uh, legislators taking the red pill? So, again, just to kind of reiterate that, that I don't think the school choice movement is really putting bipartisanship front and center. They're really putting Democratic priorities front and center. Um, and so the question is, what could you accomplish if you put Republican priorities more uh, as more of the focus of your initial proposals, of course, welcoming bipartisan support if you can get it for those Republican oriented proposals. Um, and, and at a minimum, I think the private school choice movement could be assisted by not routinely having its advocates call out the elected Republicans who vote for school choice as racists and monsters of various kinds. Um, I mean, so at a minimum, I think the, the private school choice movement needs to stop denouncing and attacking the very people who supply almost all the votes for passage of these programs, because at some point that's going to stop, right? At some point, Republicans won't supply those votes anymore for bills um, being put forward by people who attack them. But more positively, I think uh, we can look at the fact that about 85% of elected re Republicans in state legislatures that we examined voted yes on private school choice bills. Um, but there's 15% out there that they didn't get. And could you win over that 15% to pass more bills? And I think one of the ways you could do that is by making school choice more about the constituents and needs and concerns of elected Republicans than the constituents' needs and concerns of elected Democrats. After all, uh, politics is about self-interest, and it is particularly about organized self-interest. And so if we want to get more private school choice bills, we might want to think about what appeals to the interests of elected Republicans. And this would include making sure that their constituents are included as eligible participants in private school choice programs, making sure that the funding is generous enough for them to be able to have meaningful uh, options, and also uh, making sure that the marketing of these programs, the rhetoric used for these programs, appeals to their concerns about evading political indoctrination in traditional public schools. This is a very uh, big and growing anxiety among middle and upper middle class Republicans. And, and the school choice movement could say, we have a solution for you. We, we, we have a way to solve your problem with your public school rather than going to your school board and you know, protesting and then getting accused of being a domestic terrorist, um, maybe you can uh, pull your kid out, take the money and go to a, another school that actually teaches the values uh, and content that you prefer. So, and, and in the paper, Jay, you make clear that you think that school choice is sort of a part of this solution, not like a, a, a Pollyannish solution for all these ills. But I do want to take a quick step back about something that I just find a little hard to understand about the why behind the polarization on private school choice. So I get that Republicans have largely aligned behind private school choice, but to some degree, it seems a little unnatural. And by that, I mean, you know, Republicans are just far more likely to represent rural communities, just less dense communities. And Democrats are far more likely to be in urban areas. And just logistically, private school choice seems like it would be more beneficial when you could have, I don't know, 
six or seven schools nearby you rather than maybe, you know, maybe a couple. So I think you might see where I'm going here. And I'm just wondering, what do you make of this divide? And, and, and can you make sense of it between just the urban rural divide and what it might mean for school choice? Sure. So, so I, I think that one of the things that has led school choice advocates uh, astray in, in this kind of democratic centered uh, strategy is that they pay way too much attention to public opinion polls. Uh, so as it turns out, politics is not uh, the result of an opinion poll and we don't rule by plebiscite. So it doesn't matter what people say in a poll. What matters is how legislatures vote. Um, and that's why it's important to look at those votes. And so it's tempting for school choice advocates you know, like, and, and people like us uh, to sit around and say, you know, Democrats should want this. Uh, look at their constituents want it. Republicans should not want it because they're more in rural areas and they don't have as much choices. Well, as it turns out, it doesn't matter what we think they should want. Uh, we can look at what they actually do want and, and act upon that. Uh, so I think that's that's one thing. I think the second thing is is that that you know we have to be careful about over stereotyping Republicans uh, a bit here. They're they're not entirely rural. Um, they're actually very heavily suburban, and there are a lot of choices involved in suburbia potentially, and even in rural areas. Frankly, there are a lot of choices uh, given the expansion of virtual and micro schooling that we've seen possible in the in the last few years. And so uh, I think the real issue is not one of logistics or demographics. The, the real question is one of principle and value. So which party believes um, that it is generally favorable for parents to exercise more autonomy over how they educate their own children? And which party believes that it's better to have experts control the education of children and override the preferences of parents. And, and I think that's the main divide right now. And the Democratic Party is on, on the side of, of kind of a technocratic worldview of um, where, and, and Governor McAuliffe uh, in Virginia was just uh, quoted as saying, he doesn't think parents should tell schools what to teach, right? He does, and that's a normal view in the Democratic Party to believe that uh, parents don't have that standing, that that belongs to experts. And therefore, there's a, um, a bigger role for the state um, in controlling what it is that people are taught in schools. Republicans are, I think, uh, lean more towards the view that, uh, that parents should have autonomy over the education and, and raising of their own children. And they're also very concerned about the kinds of values that are being taught in traditional public schools and are seeking some respite from, from having their children indoctrinated with values that they dislike. And if Republicans were to pursue school choice bills in the future that were more squarely centered on Republican priorities, the very priorities that you're talking about. What I hear you're saying is you're likely to have more expansive choice programs when where they are established. They'll probably be well-funded enough. Uh, and indeed, many of these are sort of sillily uh, underfunded, right? So, so there's a lot of advantages. What are some of the costs on the, on the flip side of this, I mean, I'm sure there's some people that are going to say, oh, well, you know, what about this? So what might be at, at risk? What are the claims made on that front? And which ones do you sort of not count, uh, you know, not worry about? And which ones do you think are, are substantive? 
So I have not heard a lot of good counter arguments to our paper. I've, I've heard a bunch of bad ones, often expressed uh, with a strong emotion um, from school choice advocates themselves. And that's a bit disparaging, actually, how unwilling uh, people within the school choice movement are to examine evidence and critically reflect on their own strategies and the success of their own movement. I mean, it, it, just as a quick aside here, uh, there is an irony that we talk about accountability in education all the time, but one of the least accountable things there is, is the education reform movement, right? We have no accountability for success or failure. There's no, it does not matter. There are no consequences if we're right or wrong, as long as the money keeps flowing, right? And so this has created a very um, uh, counterproductive and dysfunctional culture in the education reform movement, where because we don't really experience the consequences for being wrong with our strategy, we can persist in that strategy and feel more righteous about it uh, in the face of any questions or criticism. So as, as to what, what are some of those criticisms? One is, well, uh, low-income minority students need it the most, and therefore they should be given the most priority. And I agree with the claim that, um, that low-income minority students particularly need school choice and would probably benefit the most. I, I agree with that. I'm just concerned with how they can get it. And so you, you can't help those most in need unless you can pass a bill. And, and so we have to follow strategies to help them that will, will increase the probability of passing bills. And I think we can see that Republicans are the ones who vote for these things. And if we want to help low-income minorities, then we need to get Republicans on board so that they vote for these things, maybe to help their own constituents, but they can also help low-income minority students who may not be their constituents uh, as well. And so I think there's a, a, a rising tide that could help all boats here and uh, focusing only on the, the boats most in need of staying afloat is, is not a way of getting, getting the boats to float higher. And now as to, you know, and then another argument I've heard, which also doesn't make a lot of sense to me is, well, what are we supposed to do about democratic dominated states like New York or California? And uh, my reaction to that is, well, you have no chance there anyway. And so uh, it doesn't seem to me that you should be fretting the most about the hardest to accomplish thing. It doesn't mean that I wanna write off New York or California forever. It just means that you should give first priority to the places where you have the highest chance of success and then leverage that success over the long run for putting pressure on representatives in New York and California for passing bills later. After all, this is exactly how other um, significant reform movements have prevailed. For example, the right to vote for women was leveraged out of the West, right? Um, the Western states were short of women, wished to attract more women to them. They offered the right to vote as one of the benefits of to, to lure more women to come West. And that worked. And, and as women gained the right to vote in the West, they leveraged that to other states to apply pressure to gain the right to vote there as well. I think a similar kind of pattern could occur over a very long period of time with school choice, where we get uh, a lot of school choice in Republican states, and then eventually 
as it's working well in Republican states, there could be a lot of pressure on Democratic states to come on board. And, and so there's a distinction here that you're making, I think, and, and, and definitely in the paper, sort of between, you know, the, the, the rhetoric and the soft talk and the like bare knuckle, this is how politics works. And if we're going to pass bills with particular operations, then you need to think about it through a political lens. And that's about votes. Is that fair? Right. Um, you know, a political movement is ultimately about adopting and changing policy. I mean, there's one prominent funder uh, and activist in in the ed reform space who told me years ago, I didn't get into this to expand school choice for people like you and me, he said. And it occurred to me at the time, although I didn't say it out loud, but it occurred to me, well, I don't really care why you got into it because this isn't about you and me. This is about us trying to, to expand school choice. And you can't do that unless you can pass bills. All right. So while you call the notion of sort of um, catering to garner Democratic votes into question, you also say in the paper, hey, choice supporters should always welcome Democrats who are going to back plans to expand educational freedom. Can you say a little bit more about what that looks like and where you think folks should draw the line between compromise with other politicians and compromising on uh, school choice proposals? So I think, you know, the opening bids, the initial proposal should really be crafted around Republican concerns because that's where the votes are. And the rhetoric should be built around Republican concerns because, again, that's where the votes are. But if you come up short in in getting your initial bid and do need to bring uh, additional votes on board, then you make compromises with Democrats uh, as much as is necessary um, but these are compromises. These are not the ideal. Um, and so, you know, I'm very resistant to support means-tested programs, targeted, geographically targeted programs, or poorly funded programs. I think these these all have long-term negative consequences. They actually have political liabilities attached to uh, passing bad programs uh, or 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 less you know, less well-functioning programs because they'll produce worse results and create more political liabilities down the road. And so, you know, you want to make the compromises when you have to, but not not when you don't. And I think that the school choice movement can get a lot of bills passed without having to make too many compromises from what I think ideal proposals would be around the, the central concerns of Republicans. Okay, so clearly, technically, there's the argument that a good bit of school choice legislation in the past and certainly uh, potentially in the future doesn't need to garner votes from both sides of the aisle. Uh, But there's also the question of of should it and and not in some sort of Pollyanna-ish way, but uh, for good reasons. And so I want to ask about two particular things. One is the argument that, well, if you get votes on both sides of the aisle you will lend more legitimacy to the school choice programs that that get in place. Do you buy that? I hear that argument, um, but I actually think it's 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 a weird perspective um, that shows the extent to which even you know conservative or centrist elites are captured by national uh, left leaning elite priorities. So. The, the feeling even among conservative elites is the only way to get legitimacy is to get approval from the left 
Only if the left says that they like it, is it really legit? Otherwise, it's somehow illegitimate. And that seems like a really strange thing to me. I don't see why uh, Republicans need to ask for permission from Democrats to be legitimate in their concerns. I don't see why, why parents concerned about the values their children are taught in public schools need to ask for permission from the New York Times to feel okay about their preferences. I think they're allowed to have their own preferences and to favor those preferences. And so legitimacy comes from winning. <laughs> it doesn't come from, from, you know, from the New York Times or, or from uh, DC, you know, uh, left of center think tanks. So that is that is sort of one point, and I'm going to take to the next point in that trajectory, which is, you know, there's the legitimacy question, which is a very soft issue, but there's a much sort of harder issue about what's the staying power of these programs. And so some people might argue, yeah, if you get votes from both sides of the aisle, your staying power, the longevity of these programs, the ability of these programs not to get, you know, shrunken over time or, or suffer from attrition, uh, legislative attrition, is going to be better. So if if you do get a handful of Democrats to sign their names, do you think that that might fundamentally alter the staying power of these programs? So I think one of the great features of school choice is that once programs are passed, they're extremely hard to remove legislatively. Um, I mean, they sometimes get removed by courts, but, but they, they almost never get removed legislatively. And the reason for that, I think, is that once people have experienced an expanded set of options, they're very resistant to having them taken away, especially if they're in a position politically and financially to defend their expanded set of options, which is another reason why we want to appeal to middle and upper middle class voters who lean more Republican um, because they are positioned politically to protect programs that are adopted much more effectively than if we target programs towards the most disadvantaged people who, while perhaps the most needing of those programs, are least well situated to protect those programs politically over time. So I actually think the strategy that, that, that I'm suggesting here is a much better strategy for long-term survival than putting democratic concerns front and center. Now, the other thing I would say is that there is an annoying um, refrain that I hear in the school choice movement where people will uh, uh, start talking about the long arc of history and, and, and where it bends. And I think this, this sounds like complete nonsense because there is no arc of history independent of our efforts to produce that history. And so there's no inevitability of things going in a certain direction and no one should fool themselves into thinking that. We have to work hard to win and produce these things and, and I think we can. And, and so there is an arc of history but it's one that, that we produce by working hard to make it go in the right direction. And I think you know, moving it more towards expanded school choice is the, the, the right direction. And it, it will bend that way uh, as you expand programs because again, once adopted, programs are not easily removed because parents fight for them. So l let me just repeat back what I've heard because it's an interesting sort of sort of jujitsu on the question, which is, well, hold on a second. If you don't get support, then you're probably not going to have staying power. And you're saying by looking for democratic support, you get smaller programs and thus 
threaten your own staying power, whereas if you develop a much larger constituency, you're baking in the staying power of these programs. Am I getting that right? So it's not just larger. It's it. Look, this is an unfortunate political reality, uh, and I wish it weren't so, but it is a political fact that more advantaged people have more political power. And so if you include more advantaged people among the beneficiaries of school choice programs, if, they're, if they are eligible to participate, if it addresses their concerns better, they're better positioned to fight for it. So it's not numbers, it's also who. And so, you know, the old saying is that programs for poor people are poor programs. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the, the reason for it is that poor people have a lot of disadvantages. And one of those disadvantages is that they're not able to act politically as effectively as wealthier people. And so targeting programs towards poor people um, is a bad political move. So, Jay, last question. Your paper sort of challenges the, the, the notion about, hey, you know, we need a, a, a bipartisan approach. And again, I say bipartisan just mean we, we shouldn't go it alone with Republican approaches. If we continue on the current tack, which traditionally has been let's craft programs to ensure that we can try and get some Democratic votes on the margin, what do you think are the short-term and long-term consequences for uh, expanding school choice? So the strategy that I'm advocating here is not to abandon bipartisanship. That is not to write off hoping to persuade Democrats to join. I, I think that actually the history of the school choice movement um, is that it has put Democratic concerns front and center. And I'm suggesting that that switch um, to being Republican concerns front and center. And I think that that is going to be good both in the short term and the long term for expanding school choice because you'll get more programs passed and the more per and success begets more success within the school choice movement because, again, programs are not easily repealed once they're passed. And in addition, once choice becomes normalized, it's harder to demonize it as some sort of crazy or radical notion uh, that leads to ethnic cleansing or some other kind of nonsense accusation. And so, so I, I think that, that the momentum is already building. In fact, actually, what I'm suggesting as a strategy is actually already happening regardless of the school choice movement. I mean, the hilarious thing is that we had this fantastic year of expanding school choice despite the educational reform movement. Educational reform movement, you know, wants to talk about, you know, uh, social justice and equity and and so on. And that's great, but the, the, we just had a whole bunch of school choice bills passed almost entirely by Republicans and almost entirely not repeating that rhetoric. And so this is already happening, whatever um, school choice advocates want to talk about at their conferences when they go and make speeches to each other. Uh, the question is whether the school choice movement wants to help uh, this movement move faster and better uh, or wants to be irrelevant or even a hindrance to that expansion. Uh, but I, I think, you know, this change in strategy is happening on the ground, regardless of what reformers may may think about it. Jay, it's a provocative argument. Thanks for digging into the, the data and uh, for coming on the report card to talk about it. Great. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Jay Green. We'll include a link to Jay's recent AEI CERN report in the show notes. I'd also like to thank our producers, Matt Rice and Wesley Armstrong, who make this podcast possible. And especially, as it's Matt Rice's last episode, I'd like to give great kudos to a years-long producer. Thanks, Matt. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps others find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.